Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Mike Derner. Mike is a cycling coach who has passions for very many different areas, including mountain bike, but also has been involved in the US paracycling program for a number of years now. I, I would hazard a guess that it's over 10 years, but he's going to probably correct me on that. So welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thanks, Liz. It's an absolute privilege to, uh, to be on your show. Well, I'm great to have you. So how long was I far off the mark? No, you, you were pretty close. So I started with the US Paracycling team December of 2010. So coming up on 12 years. 12 years. Okay, so I wasn't too far off. <laughs> Phew. <laughs> so Mike, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got into coaching paracycling? Absolutely. So I, I started like a lot of American kids uh, in team sports. I was playing ice hockey and then figured out that probably was never going to be big enough to <laughs> to get past even high school hockey. And I'd gotten a mountain bike for a Christmas present one year. And uh, I think the next year there was a race in the next town over. And so I, I went and I raced and uh, I did pretty good and I had a blast. So I just, I just started racing mountain bikes and eventually kind of phased out of team sports. I kept doing like cross country, track and field and, and racing my bike. And then raced all through, through college. After college, I went into the army for a few years. So it's a really good way to pay for my undergrad <laughs> and get some, some interesting experiences in life. We'll say, mm. and during that time, I got into triathlon a little bit because it was easier to to train for than than just cycling. Mm-hmm. And then after after the army, went back to grad school, got my master's in ex phys, and uh, and was still racing triathlon a bit, little bit, but but really felt the pull to get back to bike racing and coaching. Like that was mm-hmm. grad school was kind of the the stimulus for me to get into coaching mm-hmm. I'd married another, I won't say another cause I don't, I'm not sure I'm a good athlete, but I'd married a really <laughs> good athlete while I was in the army and she was doing triathlon and we had a, a, our friend that had introduced us was a coach at the time. So just hanging out with him and, and our community there while I was in grad school really provided a, a lot of stimulus for me to go, start coaching Mm. And then after grad school, I got a job coaching right away with, with Carmichael Training Systems here in Colorado Springs. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of my first introduction to Paralympic cycling. As at that time, Carmichael Training Systems had a contract with U.S. Paralympics to right. coach the cycling team. Mm-hmm. And so... Another coach, you know, Jim Lehman and Craig Griffin were, were doing all that work, but bringing in the younger coaches to expose them to these athletes and, and to the disciplines that these athletes were doing. And I was immediately intrigued, mm. partly because of my time in the Army. I, I had mm-hmm. some friends that were injured, and there were already some team members that were former service members. Mm-hmm. And 
kind of hit it off right away with them. Yep. So that yeah. was my, how I got into coaching and my intro to, to Paralympic cycling. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask a little bit more about that, that connection that you have with the athletes who have been ex-service people because in, in, certainly in the US that was something that I found that a lot of athletes come in through injuries that they've acquired in their service and they come into sport that way. Does, is there a certain mental aspect that you find that you connect with with those individuals more so? Absolutely. And, and I think even more than just like the mental aspect, it's just a, I hate to use this little cliche, but if, if you know, you know, kind of mm. yeah. thing like, oh, I, you know, I know where you've been, you know where I've been. Um, yeah. We share some, some really common experiences and, mm-hmm. and that makes it easy for us to talk about things that are, that might be uncomfortable for other people, like, like their disability or how they came about that disability and, mm-hmm. and what they've been doing to, to cope with it. Mm-hmm. And do you find that there is some under, underlying trauma, I guess, you know, post-traumatic stress syndrome that is something that they don't like to talk about openly? and that you're able to kind of uncover a little bit or do you feel as though they're they're kind of becoming more open about that so you know these days i think it's more acceptable and understood that there is a lot of after effects that people who've been in the defense forces do experience whereas you know probably back 10 15 years ago that wasn't considered kosher to really talk about that yeah I think it's it's gotten a lot better, a lot more acceptable for us to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I won't even say that we have to talk about it with one another. Eventually, we we all do, but but more of just having other people with similar experiences around mm-hmm. creates a little bit of a a community and a place where we can let our guard down, just in general. Yeah. Even if we're not discussing mm-hmm. what happened, it just yep like take off the armor for a minute and mm-hmm. and and be, be more, real around be more, uh, yeah, be more real about you rather than protecting that kind of aspect of your life. Yes. Yep. Mm. So with paracycling itself, you know, you you got introduced to it and you found it, you were intrigued. The, it's quite a complex, like you, paracycling isn't just one entity, is it? So can you talk to us as, as from a coaching perspective about the different entities that you explore within the paracycling team, for example? Like the different disciplines and even within those disciplines, you know, just the different categories and things like that. Yes, it's, uh, it, it is a, it's, it's a complex little community. For sure. Mm. There's road racing and then there's track cycling as well. The track cycling is only for upright so two wheelers who, who whose bikes look like most of the, the race bikes you might see in the Tour de France or or the Giro d'Italia mm-hmm. or or an able bodied track event. There there'll be some modifications 
based on the athlete. But for the most part, you're like, oh, okay, that's a bicycle. I can, I can tell without having to use my imagination of how that mm -hmm. might work. Yep. And those athletes, a lot of them will also compete on, on road events as well. And going back to the track a little bit, there's, when I first started, there's really just, just two events for most mm -hmm. of the athletes. And a few might have three. There was uh, the pursuit and the time trial. Yep. And the pursuit would be either three kilometers or four kilometers. And then the time trial was either 500 meters for all the women and, and a one kilometer for all the men. Mm -hmm. And then uh, there was a mixed team sprint for three athletes. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there was a point system. You had to come in under, I think the number was 10 points. And then there was a tandem sprint, which was always pretty exciting to watch. <laughs> yeah. 450 pounds of, of athlete and bike going 60 Poor kilometers pelt. an hour. Yeah. And now there's, there's a little bit more. Now there's Omnium mm -hmm. and some of those single athletes can compete in a, in a sprint event now uh, on top of the team sprint. Okay. So that, that's gotten exciting to add more to it. Mm. On the road side, there's a little more diversity. We have those same uh, called C-class athletes, so cycle on the two-wheel bikes, and then the visually impaired athletes on tandems will also compete on the track. And then we have hand cycles and trikes. Mm -hmm. And with the, within each one of those, there's a a numbered system one through five for hand cycles and C classes and trikes have one and two and tandems are just across the board. They all compete against one another, but those, those numbering systems go from one to five, one being the most impaired and five being the least impaired athletes. And the UCI who's our international governing body just like with able-bodied cycling, will try to com combine those classes to compete against one another so that you get the least amount of disadvantage from certain disabilities. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's as fair as it can be in that no two disabilities are, are, are really equal. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. in and in roads in the road race, it's also on the roadside. There's three different types of events, correct? Yes. Sorry, uh, left that out. There's the the time trial, mm -hmm. uh, which athletes start individually at, at one minute intervals, and it's a individual event. So, how fast can you cover this distance on mm -hmm. your own? Yep. And for that, we'll. We'll drive a support car usually behind an athlete and have some spare wheels or potentially even a spare bike, depending on the athlete. Mm -hmm. And then the road race, which is a mass start event, and you know, that's where you get classes starting together. So yep. in the C classes, it'll be one, two, and three starting together, and four and five starting together. Mm-hmm. In the age classes, it's usually like the, it's a lot more separated 
to to make it easier for the athletes to identify who their competitors are since mm-hmm. they they don't have quite the field of view in that most of them compete in a in a reclined supine position and it's difficult to sometimes identify who's exactly in your race if you all start together in that position. Mm. Yep. And so, and then the third, the third event is a yeah. team, team sprint kind yeah. of time trial. Yep. Hand cycle relay uh, where they, each team has three athletes. And again, it's a that point system similar to the team sprint on the track. And so you have, three different hand cycle type athletes competing one at a time with other teams out there at the same time. They all start together and then come in past a certain point and then your next team member can go. And it's a shorter event where each athlete will usually do somewhere in the range of like eight to 10 kilometers of racing. Yep. And so what have you seen change over the last 12 years that you've been involved? Like I think, you know, 12 years ago you had of this, the standing bike, two-wheel bike. I think you saw most people do both track and road and kind of they're two different beasts physiologically, aren't they, track versus a, a, a track cyclist versus a road cyclist? Yeah, especially on the shorter events, the sprint events. Mm-hmm. Um, now that we have more sprint events, they really are two different physiological athletes. Like you can't, it, it's difficult to be someone who goes really fast for one kilometer or 200 meters and then go and do an 80 or 90 kilometer road race and, mm-hmm. and perform well just because that sprint athlete is going to carry a lot more muscle um, and, and be a higher, have a higher ratio of of fast twitch muscle fibers the pursuit those athletes can still kind of go back and forth and do both mm-hmm. though the further we get into it the more specialized it becomes and the and and the more specific the athletes focus becomes yeah i remember my first first world championships and paralympic games we had the same two wheeled athletes on the road and on the track and then you know, this past games in Tokyo, I think only one male athlete and three female athletes came over from the track to the road. So that was yeah, and, a lot and, smaller group. And, yeah, and there was also a, at least one two-wheeler who only did the road and didn't do the track. Yes. Yep. So more specialization now because there's a bigger differential between you know the physiological demands on the track and the types of events that they're racing in versus the road yes and we've seen a lot of changes in in the equipment as well Um, Mm -hmm. especially the the two-wheeled side has progressed with able-bodied cycling pretty much in the same at the same speed but the three-wheeled side trikes and hand cycles Trikes are probably the slowest to progress uh, mm-hmm. because they are such a unique machine. Mm. Uh, we took a, an athlete to Worlds this past season who had a, a trike that was very different from everyone else's. He had two wheels in the front. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. 
it, he was the talk of the town. Um, I bet he was. Yeah, he and and he's since he was brand new, he started the time trial first, and so all the commissaires uh, and other team directors were just huddled around the the start house trying to get a look. Going, is this legal? Is this allowable? It's so different. We're not used to it. <laughs> so, and the commissaires all said, yep, it's legal. And so we started mm. and uh, it, it, uh, it continued to get a lot of looks all week. I'll say I rode that trike myself and found it mm. 100% easier to ride than all the other trikes. And can you explain why? So the, the standard trike has two wheels in the back. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's a bolt-on axle that bolts onto a, a standard bicycle frame. And a, a standard bicycle is meant to turn by leaning. And mm -hmm. if you have two wheels in the back, it doesn't lean. Mm -hmm. And so turning it, you have to take everything you know about riding a bicycle and basically stand it on end, reverse it yep. 180 degrees. And this particular machine with two wheels in the front, it was significantly more stable. Um, mm. I still couldn't lean it, but it was a lot harder to tip over mm. than, than a standard tricycle that we had been dealing with for the last 12 years. Yep. And, and when a trike tips over, it's usually not the most pleasant to either watch or to experience as a cyclist from my my experience i mean it's it's a mess it, it is a mess and it's it, you know all the the coaching and mechanic staff generally gets much closer to having a uh, cardiac arrest than <laughs> do normally and 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 the athletes they're usually the best off they're usually just ready to go again as mm. soon as we get them up but uh yep. but yeah it's a mess yeah. oh wow so that that'll be interesting to see how quickly that takes on in terms of other people going for the same sort of design of that bike it will yes absolutely and so from that physiological difference between different you know events how how do you go about coaching a paracyclist in in terms of does that mean that each of your coaching programs has to be even more highly individualized than it would be perhaps for an able-bodied cyclist like how do you you know what process do you go through in terms of setting up a, a, a training program it's it's pretty similar to what i would do with an able-bodied cyclist as far as actually like getting goals from the athlete I, where do you, where are you now? Where do you want to be at this time mm -hmm. next year? What what events do you want to race? And and what what's in between where we are now and where you want to be? I think the biggest difference is finding out how does their their disability influence their ability to to train and to recover and, and the recovery piece is probably the biggest piece mm. especially when we're talking about hand cycles who might be in a wheelchair mm -hmm. they're using their arms 
for everything. Um, yep. If I have a an upright cyclist, two wheeler, I can be like, hey, go lay down for a little while, or sit at your desk and do some work, and and you're taking the pressure off your legs. But with the hand cyclist yep. that I work with, that's not really an option. And the with the differences in muscle fiber, upper body to lower body, find that it just doesn't it doesn't recover when you're using your upper body mm-hmm. more for everything from making dinner to transferring to bed, transferring to the tub. Yep. That slows down an athlete's recovery. And so where an able body or a two wheeled cyclist on a pair team, their program might look a lot like an able body athlete who would be would say I would compete in something similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a hand cyclist, I take out things like recovery days and and just like there's no recovery ride. It's just a recovery day. You're completely yeah. off. Try to do off as little as you can. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And with the with a trike, I haven't personally coached a trike rider yet, but I've been their their road coach, their person to come to when we're on a trip, and and mm-hmm. I really try to get them to get off their legs because there's usually a stability issue or a balance issue, and so they're they're not just getting up and walking around like you or I, but they're also like expending a lot more energy trying to balance and yeah. avoid falling and just little things that we might take for granted, like a curb become a mm. more significant obstacle for them. So trying to find ways for them. Uh, I think Jim Lehman and I have been trying to convince all the trikes to get travel wheelchairs for years now. Successfully, (laughs) yeah, because then they can at least get off their legs, which you know, they're you know, that instability it's it's quite significant. In that, you know, to walk a kilometer, for example, would take them probably three times to four times as long than what it does for you or I because they're actually every single step that they take, they're actually having to rebalance themselves and, and, and make sure that they're actually not going to trip over something or fall over. And, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a huge impact in terms of their energy demand. Yeah. And, and that's from the coaching side, that's a hard thing for us to, to measure. Mm. Even when we have someone you know, as good as you along on a trip with us, like we can't figure out how many extra calories that I think might be burning doing that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how do you figure that out? No, I've never been able to work that out. <laughs> no idea yet. Because it's not something that a heart rate monitor or a step counter or anything like that can actually measure. No. So that, you know, that's just one of the reasons that we've been trying to get them to take an easier way. Um, But they're they're athletes and they they have that mindset of like, I wouldn't be here if I took the easier way. (laughs) So it's a difficult conversation. 
Yeah, for sure. And so do you see many common nutrition issues within the whole group or subgroups of the para population that you work with that are different than what you see in able-bodied cyclists? Like, you know, particularly for road cycling, it's, it's a pretty high energy demanding, you know, environment from just the, the amount of time they spend on the bike and, and the intensity at which some of their rides are, particularly if they've got hilly rides, for example. And even as a track cyclist, their intensity is really high. It might be short, but then they're also doing a lot of strength work and, and, and power work. What common nutrition issues do you see and that are different than what you see in an able-bodied population? I think this is one of the spots where it really does become a different training program and a different coaching conversation with the athletes. You know, if you have athletes that uh, on the upright, the two-wheeler side, maybe they only have one arm or one hand mm-hmm. and, and therefore just the act of like reaching down to grab the bottle or something to eat becomes a bit precarious mm. at best. And at worst, like, you know, if we have questionable road surfaces can result in a crash. Um, mm. And so, you know, finding, finding ways for athletes to work around that, like whether it's wearing a, a hydration pack or setting up their bottles with a, a extended straw so they don't have to reach down they can just like draw what they're taking in through the straw Mm -hmm. and i think some of the newer products out there like super fuel from scratch or 333 from carbo rocket which have a higher calorie content Mm -hmm. but don't taste like it they don't taste overly thick or too sweet are also helpful in that, oh, okay, I don't need to reach in my pocket either. Mm. Um, and then trikes, again, with the instability, creating a system like I just described for an athlete with one arm or one hand, because even on the bike, they can be unstable. Mm-hmm. And, and so we want to do something like that with the trikes as well. But it's it's also individualized. And so some athletes might be more stable, some athletes might be less. And so figuring out how to do that without without making the athlete feel like they're they're less than they think they are uh, mm-hmm. is important. Yep. Yeah. And then the hand cycles are a completely unique thing. Have the the H five class, which are kneelers and really tend to be more say that other athletes aren't independent but these athletes like have their (laughs) own style about doing everything and and so some might be just using a bottle that they've they've set up a a cage for or using their jersey pocket um, if they're if if their kneeler allows them to put something in in a rear pocket and others might be using hydration bladder with an extra long hose that they stick in the bucket of their their hand cycle down with mm-hmm. their their legs or their stumps whatever they have and so again it's just finding what works for that individual 
to keep them going. Mm -hmm. And then the other classes of hand cycles, I think just about everybody on the US team now is, is using some sort of hydration bladder and hose system. Mm -hmm. Because for, for those athletes, taking a hand off means well, I can't, I can't pedal as hard and my steering yep. is compromised. My braking yep. and shifting is probably compromised as well. Yep. Yeah, and they can put that in behind where their head is and their back is in, in their bike. There's usually a little pocket that they can just pop in behind there and then run the hose to them uh, over their shoulder. Yeah, that's been a big change since I first started. Everybody was, you know, 12 years ago, all those all the hand cycle athletes were basically on welded metal frames and then they were st strapping the pack itself to the frame and then running the hose up to their their chest and, and now most of the hand cycle athletes are on custom-made carbon frame sets and they've they've had a, a compartment just for the the hydration bladder built into the frame and then a routing system that that puts the hose like right over their shoulder like it would be for a mountain biker. Mm. Yep. And those carbon frames, they're much, much lighter than obviously the old frames were. So are you seeing big differences into in terms of the speeds that they, they can generate? Oh, it, it, yeah, huge huge increases in speed on the hand cycles because as they not just get lighter but as those machines get more custom designed to the athlete mm -hmm. they're just more aerodynamic and so mm -hmm. they're going uphill faster with the lighter bikes they're going downhill faster with more aerodynamic bikes um, and and doing the flats faster because of both of those and and then the gearing you know, we used to have cables running everywhere in front of their faces. And now I'd say most of the team is on, especially the hand cycles, are on some sort of wireless shifting. Uh, mm. So there's one cable, maybe two for the brakes coming out, and that's it. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's huge in terms of the, the changes in the technology and, and that they've been able to achieve. What have you also seen in terms of the depth of comp competition, like, is, is cycling something that has increased in its popularity amongst para-athletes and you're getting you know, more athletes and bigger groups that are off on the start line? Yes, definitely. I think especially among the Europeans and the Australian team has done a really good job in, in keeping their numbers high. So for the US, I think, it's always a little bit of a struggle because like geographically we're so large, so spread out and, and there's, there's so many opportunities for athletes with a disability here in the States. I don't know exactly how it is in Europe or Australia, but, but there's, there's a lot of different things for them to try here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you go to Belgium, uh, I can, drive across Belgium in a couple hours. I think I drive across Belgium and the Netherlands in a couple hours. And, <laughs> um, you know, it takes me the same amount of time to get to the next state over in Colorado. Mm. So 
you know, finding, finding the ethics here is a, is a bigger geographic problem. And, um, and then like just cycling in, in the United States is not what it is in some of those other countries. Mm. Yep. Mm. And so I guess, you know, do you feel as though it's hard to find kind of newer athletes? Like, I, I guess one of the questions I have is, is how do para-athletes or athletes who are interested in potentially being a paracyclist get into paracycling? So there's, there's a couple of different ways to get into it. We will usually once a year we have like a talent identification camp. Next year we'll actually try to get back to face-to-face ones. Mm. We've been doing them on Zwift and, and Zoom since the pandemic started. And then the other hard part is one of my early duties with Paralympic cycling was I would, I would travel a lot and, and go out and look for athletes mm-hmm. at, at certain events uh, and, and then just start up a conversation with them. It, my life has changed since then, and it's not really <laughs> a, a realistic thing for me to do anymore. And I don't know, like, there's not someone filling those shoes. And so we're all, like, everybody that works it with Paralympic Cycling just kind of does a little bit of, to kind of make light of it a little bit, like some light internet stalking of, <laughs> of people that, that have a disability that are doing some adventurous things. And, and then the media department at Paralympics, they do a good job with social media and promoting it, getting it out to other, other organizations that support uh, athletes with disability, whether it's CAF or a lo- more local organization. Uh, mm-hmm. I will say, though, that the upside to not having the deepest pool of athletes is that the athletes we do have, they love it. And they, mm-hmm. they want to be on the national team. They want to be continuing to work hard mm-hmm. to, to be the best that they can be internationally. So that's that's a nice problem to have in mm-hmm. that we don't have anymore. When I first started, there was a few athletes that are like just kind of lingering on the edges of like, I don't really want to do this anymore, but I still get a little money out of it. And so, so I'll, keep, I'll keep doing the minimum. And I don't think we have any athletes really doing the minimum anymore. Now we have mm-hmm. athletes like asking us, what else can we do? And so in terms of getting into coaching paracyclists, how do you see, like you interact with coaches from around the world when you go to major events and things like that. What do you see as the common kind of pathway by which some of these coaches have gotten into coaching paracycling? It, uh, I, I think it's different for all of us. And that's a little bit of a hard question fully answered because I don't think I've ever asked another coach, like, how did you get into this? I don't think I've ever asked Seb from Canada, like, how did, how did you get into this? Oh, maybe like, I've just set you a challenge, Dana. Yeah, now I've got it. <laughs> I'll have to come back and do another podcast on, and yeah. you'll have to report back on what were your findings of this little study that you've done of all the paracycling coaches in terms of how they got into it. <laughs> yeah, I will. I, I will say I, I see some – some common traits among mm-hmm. 
all of us. And it's more than just about the winning and losing. It's, I, I see people that want to provide an avenue of, of competition and of mm-hmm. being equal to everyone, to those athletes that maybe, you know, even 30 years ago might have just been fed on the sidelines and said, hey, you're not an athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I guess you'd call it some compassion towards, towards the athletes we all work with and a, and a sense of like wanting them to be included. Yep. And, you know, are there, there's not really clubs set up for paracycling per se. So it does really happen on an individual level in terms of people, you know, maybe having the opportunity to coach someone in their local area who happens to have an impairment rather than there being a club system like there is for some other sports like swimming. There's club, like club systems that people can get involved. There's a little bit not so much of that with cycling. Is that right? Yeah, you know, there are clubs, but I think that the club system in cycling is, depending on where you go, some, I know a friend who coaches a club, a cycling club in the Washington, D.C. area, and they're very competitive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, there's a cycling club here in Colorado Springs that they have like a social side and a competitive side. And mm-hmm. they have coaches that are, part of the club but don't necessarily coach within the club and so i think it's different than than especially european club sports where you have that like the football club and the rugby club and the field hockey and and even like in belgium and the netherlands there's track cycling clubs and there, there's mm-hmm. a coach who has maybe a couple of coaches under them and they they run workouts for the locals and they get to interact with them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's definitely different. And you know, if somebody wanted to get into it, I would say, you know, contacting US Paralympic Cycling is probably the, the first step. And mm-hmm. and then you know, finding out if there are some athletes in the area and just going for a ride with them, mm-hmm. talking with them, because it's a trust heavy relationship and mm-hmm. Say our athletes, paracycling athletes in general, probably are very cautious about just giving their trust to mm-hmm. anyone. Mm. Okay. Well, I think, yeah, there's probably that's a, a great lesson in terms of just going out and riding with them and developing a relationship, you know, before you try and you know, venture into actually directly coaching them i remember the one and only time that i took my bike out with the uh the national team and <laughs> let's just say i didn't do the full ride because those those hand cyclists boy they can move you you don't want to have to follow them on a descent no it's uh, <laughs> is that in Chile? uh no it was actually up in one of the camps up north of Santa Barbara. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Solvang. Uh, yeah. 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 So yeah, was uh, was was a real life uh, in terms of just how fast those those bikes can go and yeah, crazy. Any specific recommendations that you have for paracyclists, 
and you know from the athletes and also from the coaches perspective any any specific tidbits that you'd have for them yeah i, I think the biggest thing is, is don't don't be afraid to to experiment to try new things as far as you know your, your bike setup your nutrition setup your just the mechanics of of how all your stuff works mm-hmm. and you know if you run short of ideas uh reach out to someone else who's who's doing something similar because that's you know they probably did the same thing they probably ran out of ideas and asked someone else and so experiment a lot ask a lot of questions and and don't be afraid of of those experiments failing because i don't know how many things we've we've failed at (laughs) in the time i've been with paralympic cycling Um, but it's a big list (laughs) yeah but if you don't try something different you won't ever know so yeah exactly i think you know i think that's kind of the way it is with all forms of para sport that a lot of this stuff is unknown and you've just got to try something and and see how it goes and modify as necessary or go back to the drawing board occasionally and start again <laughs> yeah yeah we, we do that a lot um, mm. and the other piece is don't remember that nobody's nobody's above any piece of work or anything that needs to get done with with a group of paracyclists there's I've, I've seen team directors pumping tires and coaches building accessibility ramps and mechanics handing up water bottles and everybody just doing every every anyone else's job that just needs to get done yep yeah yeah absolutely it's a everyone needs to pitch in and and help out it's a it's a it is a real team effort in such an individual sport yeah, I think that's a it's a really important learning. Yeah. What is I guess over the last twelve years, what is probably one of the key things that you've learnt from the processes that you've gone through? Two things. Patience and and communication. <laughs> yep. Those those are the two biggies. You gotta you gotta talk about what you wanna do and and make it known and and you gotta be patient when it doesn't happen right away. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's always a work in progress, isn't it? Yep. Every day. Yep. Mm, cool. Well, Mike, I've taken up a lot of your time already and, and I know I could keep talking to you forever, but it, you need to go to bed. So last question is, what's your favourite food? So I knew this one was coming and it's still difficult. Um, <laughs> I do love Mexican food. But I also love when we go to Italy for a race. So it's, it's tough. I, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to say it depends on where I'm at. If I'm in the States, uh-huh. it's definitely Mexican food. I made homemade guacamole tonight for dinner. Mm-hmm. And that's just fantastic. My son squeezed the limes and helped me cut the avocados. Made it even better. But when, <laughs> when we get the chance to go to Italy, I'm going to track down some prosciutto at Malone. Um, which is prosciutto uh-huh. and cantaloupe, and it's uh, the mm. sweet and salty is fantastic. Love that. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, I'll I'll accept two different versions to your favorite food, depending on where you are. Appreciate awesome. that. Well, 
Thank you, Mike. So now you have the challenge of going out and interviewing some paracycling coaches and find out where they came from, and then we'll have you report back. In a, in a, I'll give you a year, maybe, <laughs> have, to do some research. We have three World Cups before the first full week of June next year, so I'll get it done. Okay. Awesome. Excellent. Well, and then I'll I'll pencil that into my diary and we'll have you come back in for a short report back from roving reporter Mike Derner. Sounds great. <laughs> great. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. And uh, yeah, we wish we'll sort of look forward to seeing more of the products of your coaching expertise come through in the US paracycling ranks. Uh, thank you, Liz. I appreciate the invite and it was an honor to be on your show. I think Mike's done a great job of highlighting the role that experimentation can play in helping to find solutions for para-athletes to improve their ability to perform and to train consistently. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to leave us a message, please do so on our website. And I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Hayley Dance, who is a dual silver medalist paratriathlete.